This is their new hoax. But, you know, we did something that's been pretty amazing. We're all feeling the impact of coronavirus. Today, Qantas stood down 20,000 people, and, of course, they're joining a long list. If I get corona, I get corona. At the end of the day, I'm not going to let it stop me from partying. Well, why, why the big secret? People are smart. They can handle it. A person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. Welcome to Nursing Review's new podcast. Each episode, we'll look at a different aspect of the pandemic, tackling myths, talking research, and keeping you informed. Right, and then I see the disinfectant, where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or, or almost... My name is Connor Burke, and this is the Nursing Review Coronavirus Podcast. The COVID-19 crisis is raging across the globe. As I speak, there have been over 300,000 deaths and over 5 million cases worldwide. Economies have been decimated, jobs lost, panic and confusion is still reigning. And as life has changed for many, we should remember that this is not the first time this has happened. There's a long history of pandemics around the globe uh, which have left behind large death tolls and it's something that has happened even in our lifetime. My name is Connor Burke, and joining me to talk about the history of pandemics today is Professor Peter Curson, Emeritus Professor in the Department of Health Systems and Population at Macquarie University, and the author of Deadly Encounters, How Infectious Disease Helped Shape Australia. Peter, thanks for joining us. A pleasure. Peter, from my brief reading, the uh, first recorded pandemic was in Athens, uh, I think 400-odd BC. It happened during the Peloponnesian War at decimated two-thirds of you know the population it spread through many countries uh, many people died um, you know about how many pandemics have hit humans through history <laughs> that's an interesting question um, I mean in, in Australia alone we've had uh, at least 20 I would say in the world over the last few hundred years there have been probably at least a couple of hundred uh, and pandemics have become a major feature of human life. That actually is surprising, even though I have spent a bit of time trying to, you know, looking up, but that many um, is is pretty crazy. Um, I mean, there are famous examples that we all could probably bring up before this. Um, I'm thinking the Black Death around the 1300s, which was responsible for the death of, well, I think one third of the world population, about 200 million people, you know, that plague came back many times. The Great Plague of London killed 20% of London's population. Do any of these kind of um, stick out or any historical ones that are, that are really um, interesting to talk about? Well, the Black Death, of course, is always said to be one of the most significant outbreaks of <clears throat> a pandemic. But more recently, the smallpox outbreaks in the 19th and 20th century mm-hmm. probably killed about 400 million people oh, wow. in the uh, and we know, of course, uh, flu alone in 1918-19 killed probably 60 or 70 million people around the world. But there's a long history of such things. I mean, plague, for example, is bubonic plague is a good example. Um, the bubonic plague, the last major outbreak of bubonic plague, which spread out of China in the 1880s and reached Australia in 1900, probably killed 
40 million, 50 million people and hung on until the 1930s, in fact. Oh, wow. I didn't realise that because I was kind of going to talk to you the starting point for Australia was potentially um, the flu of uh, 1918, but so that the plague came back. So what what is it about the plague then that, that makes that such a, a hardy virus? Um, well, there's a long history of flu and um, I mean, basically we're confronted by... Uh, the microbial world, which we tend to believe that we are the dominant species in the world and we can control everything. If we get a threat, we just simply think we can develop a magic bullet directed at it and we will win. Mm -hmm. Nothing could be further from the truth. The major uh, feature of our world is that the microbial world dominates. They have It has the ability to change, mutate, um, retreat into its zoonotic uh, um, environment, i.e. many of them come from animals. Uh, Many of them are nurtured among animals where they go back and then emerge sometimes uh, in the years thereafter. Plague is a good example, really. I mean, we think that uh, bubonic plague has disappeared from the world. Nothing could be further from the truth. Today, plague is more widespread in the world, geographically widespread, than any time in human history. Half the United States is one giant reservoir of bubonic plague, where the infection uh, is maintained in ground-living burrows of animals, like rats and uh, other animals, uh, and nothing can be done to get rid of it. Rarely does it affect humans now, but very occasionally it does. For example, in Los Angeles and San Francisco, probably 20, 30 people every year present with the symptoms of bubonic plague. Most GPs have never seen it. Uh, They're not even sure what they're dealing with. And these are people who've been out in uh, rural, remote areas and have come into contact with I'm a marsupial, a prairie dog. They may even have a pet prairie dog, prairie dog and have been exposed to the infection. Mm-hmm. So why, I, I'm thinking, you know, why is it less, or why does it seem to be less infectious now than it had done previously? Have we as a species um, developed some antibodies to, to the plague? Yes, we have. Uh, we have developed uh, an antibacterial plague as a, bacterial infection. We have a vaccine and the antibodies, but it certainly hasn't removed the threat of bubonic plague. Uh, and we still honestly believe that we have <clears throat> moved into a post-infectious disease era. Again, nothing could be further from the truth. With our, ba- our battle against major infections that have caused pandemics and major epidemics, uh, in that battle, we've only really won one outbreak, and that was smallpox, which has largely now disappeared from the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, although, who's to know what uh, nations are using it as a biological weapon? That's quite possible. But smallpox is the only uh, infection that we've managed to control. Most others we still are, are confronted by. Mm-hmm. Take polio, for example. Polio affected Australia from 1903 to 1956. It caused hundreds of thousands of infections and many people spent the rest of their lives semi-crippled. We believed that the vaccines that were developed in the mid-1950s would see the disappearance of polio. 
but a new variant has emerged over the last few years. So again, our battle with polio has not proved that very successful. So if we can zero in now on Australian history, and uh, the, the one that's kind of been brought up quite often, um, because there are still some people alive who had the Spanish flu uh, in the early 1900s, and I believe worldwide it is estimated to have killed about 50 million people. Um, can you paint a picture of Australia in 1918 when the Spanish flu hit? Well, <clears throat> let's jump back a little bit earlier. There was, a, an earlier, there was an earlier pandemic of flu in 1891 in Australia. People tell, I mean, one of the things we face when we're looking at infectious disease, we tend to forget what happened in the past. Uh, we tend to forget the lessons we've learned and we tend to recreate the same sort of defence measures that we've used for centuries. I mean, the present process of lockdown and quarantine was used widely against smallpox in 1881 in Australia. However, the influenza epidemic of 1890-91 is largely forgotten in Australia. It was an epidemic that was classical influenza. It affected old people and young children, unlike the 1918-19 outbreak. But at least 800,000 Australians caught flu in 1890-91, 25% of the Australian population. Mm. There weren't that many deaths, about 3,000 deaths. But even so, we've forgotten about that. Now, if you move on to the 1918 or the 1919 flu pandemic when it reached Australia, well, then we're dealing with something different entirely in some ways. It was the first time influenza had affected young, mobile people. Largely, as I said a moment ago, influenza always affected the old and the very young. But the 1918-19 outbreak, for the first time, affected young, mobile uh, middle class as well as upper class uh, people, men, large to a large extent men, but also women. In Australia, that outbreak produced about 1.8 million cases in 1919 of flu, 30% of the population. Oh, wow. Population in 1919 in Australia was about 3 million. So about 30, 35% of the population uh, had influenza in 1919. And there were probably about 15,000 deaths, probably more, because we, the reports we've had are not very uh, good, actually. But at least 15 or 16,000 Australians died from influenza. Wow. Um, and indeed, it was probably one of the greatest outbreaks of um, <clears throat> Australian experience. But again, we tend to forget as I said, we've forgotten the 1890-91 influenza epidemic. We've forgotten the outbreak of smallpox in parts of New South Wales in 1881. Um, we've forgotten, and another uh, example, uh, which I'll mention in a moment, encephalitis lethargica. Basically, pandemics are like we're suffering at the moment. Mm -hmm. They come in a wave form, uh, reach a peak and then gradually decline. Occasionally, there's a second wave. Mm -hmm. Not always. Certainly in the 1919 influenza, there were two major waves. and The, the second one was more severe than the first. Yeah. We, we have yet to see whether we're going to experience that with coronavirus. Mm -hmm. You wrote last um, year that if, if the pandemic attacked Sydney or if a pandemic attacked Sydney today 
at the same rate as the Spanish flu, it would equate to about 1.8 million cases and 22,000 deaths. Um, you know, how did they deal with the pandemic in 1918? I mean, today we have daily social media and daily news conferences and briefings getting the messages out there. But how did they deal with, um, you know, telling people to wash their hands and telling people to stay indoors? Well, the interesting thing about our response to pandemics is that we fall back on measures that we've used for the last 100, 200 years. I mean, the, the first efforts to understand and control the outbreaks of infectious disease probably occurred in Sydney in 1870s when there was a major outbreak of scarlet fever among children. That's the first time, really, that the government became mobilised and tried to develop a process of understanding and controlling. And the measures they used thereafter were simply the measures that are used today. Lockdown, quarantine, removal of cases, uh, the establishment of places where you can put cases, and nothing really has changed. But as I was about to say before, we also have another form of pandemic, and that is a slow pandemic. Um, and the best example of that in Australian history uh, is polio, which stretched on for 50 years, or HIV AIDS, or there are other examples where the disease continued on lengthy period of time, appearing not in a sort of a, an epidemic frame that we're now confronted by. And in some ways, they've been as important as the marginal ones. But how quickly we forget about things. In 1917, right through to the early 1930s, Australia experienced an outbreak of encephalitis lethargica. Now, people have totally forgotten about this. Mm -hmm. It probably caused well over 1,000 cases, probably six or 700 deaths. Uh, it was, it's been around for a long, long time, centuries. It created a frozen state in people where in the, attempt, in the process of recovering, they were totally frozen. And many of them remained like that for 50 years until a vaccine was discovered in the mid-1950s. But even that didn't really help. But we've totally forgotten about things like that. Mm -hmm. And there are plenty of other examples as well of the things we've forgotten. I mean, Australia has been associated with threats from pandemics uh, for well over 200 years. Um, and we've really always struggled to come to grips with them in some ways. Um, and we've also struggled not... I mean, pandemics and epidemics have two largely important aspects. One is the simple cases and deaths, but the other, which we tend to often ignore, is how people regard risk in their lives, how they regard fear, panic hysteria and many pandemic all pandemics have produced a tremendous outbreak of human reaction i mean in the flu pandemic of 1919 in the plague pandemics in the early part of the 1900s people avoided everybody locked themselves away tried to find somebody to blame pointed the finger at the chinese argued that they we need to lock ourselves away completely from contact with anybody and in a sense, governments today still do not understand how ordinary people regard risk. Governments, when looking at outbreaks of infectious disease, 
tend to say, well, risk is simply something you take the number of people exposed to an infection uh, and you compare those that catch it with those that don't, and that's the element of risk. Yet for you and I, risk is much more a social, psychosocial activity. It's nurtured by what the media tells us, what people around us do, what we foresee, what we understand, uh, how we value our family and whatever. And governments often continue to ignore that or not understand that. Uh, And while there's a widespread belief that Australia has always responded effectively and humanely to past epidemics uh, and pandemics, in some ways nothing could be further from the truth. Um, When you look at, uh, with the possible exception of HIV AIDS, uh, when you look at how the state and federal governments in Australia behaved, then all you see is an endless battle between the two as to how to control it, how to uh, institute barriers and whatever. Mm -hmm. And the flu pandemic of 1919 is the classic example of this, where in late 1918, when the Australian government was concerned about the flu pandemic raging in Europe, it called a meeting of all the state leaders and set out a policy to how to address an outbreak, a major outbreak in Australia. That included giving the federal government responsibility for border controls, for shipping, uh, demanding that all states immediately acknowledge uh, the first outbreak and inform the Commonwealth and whatever. Well, what happened in late January 1919 when flu broke out, uh, it all fell apart. States went their own way. Um, Queensland closed its border, sounds familiar, uh, with New South Wales. Uh, Western Australia uh, threatened to leave the Commonwealth if they continued to cut the train link off with Adelaide. Uh, Tasmania uh, closed its own borders. Everything went their own way. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we struggled to work out a policy of cooperation and understand what that means during times of severe stress. So now we obviously have job seeker and other economic measures to allay some of the economic hardships. But I'm curious, how did the you know working classes or the indigenous populations fare in previous pandemics? Well, of course, um, during the plague or during the influenza outbreaks in the 19th, early 19th century, um, businesses went to the wall. Everything was closed down. Uh, shops, businesses, schools. Schools, with, all the schools were taken over as, pub, as private, public hospitals during the flu pandemic. Um, and indeed, uh, uh, people really struggled to survive. Um, one of the perhaps best examples is what is not necessarily referred to as a pandemic, but it, it probably was. Australia has suffered dengue outbreaks since the 1870s. Uh, and in some ways it's an infectious disease spread by mosquitoes, uh, and we still indeed have large outbreaks of dengue. But the 1925-26 outbreak of dengue in the eastern part of Australia was an unbelievable epidemic. There were something almost 600,000 cases of dengue in 1925-26, Uh, And the disease spread almost right down to Sydney from the northern parts of Queensland. And it created an incredible fear. Not many people died from it, 
And that's one of the great ironies of a disease like dengue. Uh, in some ways, our public health system is, is based on if something kills us, we, they do immediately do something about it. If it only makes us, incapacitates us or makes us ill, we tend to be forced to live with it. And that's the case with dengue. We should have got rid of dengue years ago. Uh, but in 1925-26, most of the businesses in <clears throat> parts of Queensland, northern New South Wales, and even in Sydney went to the wall. And for about four or five months, people were out of work. Uh, the businesses struggled to survive. Um, whole town, most of the small towns in northern New South Wales, roughly 70% of the population had dengue. Wow. Now, it didn't kill people, but it totally incapacitated them, and it completely disrupted the, um, the, the north schools were closed, businesses fell, people were put out of work, uh, and that happened in just about every pandemic and epidemic Australia's had of major outbreaks. Certainly that happened in the flu pandemic, the plague pandemic, uh, and smallpox, various smallpox outbreaks. I mean, there was a major outbreak of smallpox in New South Wales between 1913 and 1917. Mm -hmm. Who remembers it? Very few. I mean, one of the basic problems we face is that epidemics and pandemics are a recurring event in Australian history. Uh, and we tend have to have not learnt much from the past. We tend to delve back and say, all right, we'll quarantine the suburb, uh, we'll move of infected cases, we'll set up places where we can put them, and exactly what's happening in the coronavirus now. And that's exactly what was done in the mid-19th century in Australia. Mm -hmm. Now, perhaps there's no alternative, but it can actually go to extreme events. During the plague outbreak in Sydney in 1900, or between 1900 and 1910, um, literally... Thousands of people were forcibly evicted from their homes, many of them taken over to the quarantine station on the other side of the harbour, even if they didn't have plague, but they'd had the misfortune to live next door to somebody or be thought to have come in contact. They were immediately taken over and forcibly removed by the police to the quarantine station. In addition to that, one of the aspects of pandemics and epidemics is that We've got to find somebody to blame. You've got to find somebody who can point the stick at and say they were responsible for introducing it. The plague epidemic is the best example. Immediately, people thought it's from China. And most of the, a good proportion of Sydney's Chinese were living in the rocks. And their houses were demolished. Many hundreds of them were taken over to the quarantine station, even though they had no record of plague or even living next to somebody, and they were put in tents on the ground level of the quarantine station. But the search for somebody to blame is part of the human behaviour, mm -hmm. and in some ways we don't fully understand that. I think it was in 2003 you predicted a substantial increase in infectious disease in the next decade to 15 years. Since then we've seen SARS, MERS, Ebola, uh, swine flu to name but a few. Why are we shocked, and why are we not more prepared for these well, it's a good question. In some ways, we are more susceptible, I suppose, to infectious disease, but also we tend to ignore the significance of the, as I said, the biophysical environment. I mean, it's one of the ironies of Australia, in some ways, that uh, the human health 
is segregated from animal health, whereas many infections are involved in animal populations. And you'd think that if we were going to have a comprehensive health system, you'd have one that combined human and animal health. In Australia, unlike many other countries, the two are distinctly discrete. Um, and we tend to ignore it. I mean, basically, it comes back to what I said before. We tend to believe <clears throat> we are the dominant species, that we can adjust, we can adapt, we can develop a new antiviral uh, serum or a new antibacterial drug and simply direct it at the infection that threatens us. We still do not simply understand that infectious diseases mutate, change, adapt, uh, and are beautifully... Um, adapted to our lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Flu, the influenza is a classic example. The drug we get or the injection we get this year may have no um, ability to protect us next year because the virus will have changed. Uh, and it takes, as we see with the coronavirus, it takes considerable time to investigate and develop uh, an antiviral drug. Um, in some ways, I think we're more likely to be at threat from viral infections, anti particularly ones from zoonotic uh, harbours, i.e. animal diseases, in the next 20, 25 years than ever before. So they, they say that if we don't know our history, we're doomed to repeat the mistakes. Uh, what do you think going forward governments, uh, you know, world bodies should be doing to prepare for the next outbreak? Well, that's interesting because <clears throat> there's been a lot of criticism of the World Health Authority. I mean, it comes down to what pandemics are in a sense. Or, I mean, basically, a pandemic comes from the, the Greek where uh, pan means all and demos means the people. So a pandemic should be something that affects all the people in, in most countries. Rarely does that happen, of course. And we usually are dependent on the World Health Authority to declare a pandemic when they believe a most virulent disease has spread. Uh, but in some ways, they've let us down. The Ebola outbreaks in West Africa are a classic example where the World Health Authority took so long to respond that literally thousands of people died. And in some ways, the same applies here. They took a while to recognise the existing uh, coronavirus. But, I mean, <clears throat> it's almost impossible to find an outbreak of an infectious disease where everybody in a country or a large proportion of people were affected. Some people can avoid in infection by isolation or limited contact with others or a degree of personal immunity or perhaps just good luck. Uh, and, indeed, we still don't fully understand that in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess... It's interesting to contemplate on, on whether we can rely on institutions like the World Health who have been very disappointing over the last few years in their recognition of outbreaks. I mean, as I said, the Ebola outbreaks in Africa were a classic example where many parts of the developed world shrugged their shoulders and said, well, it's an, it's an outbreak in Africa. It'll burn itself out. Let's just watch it for a while and do nothing about it. Uh, what they don't understand is that not only are tens of thousands of people dying, but the infection can spread very easily. I mean, a couple of people got on a plane and spread Ebola to parts of Africa, Europe. Mm -hmm. 
And that's exactly what can happen today. I mean, the concept of border controls means nothing in the attempt to isolate and control infectious diseases. Uh, we're at risk far more so in the fact that millions, tens of hundreds of millions of people cross international borders every year. Most of them in their journey being far less than the incubation time of any infection. So how do you control something like that? Impossible. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully uh, people won't be so quick to forget this pandemic uh, in the future. Peter's book is called Deadly Encounters, How Infectious Disease Helped Shape Australia. Peter Curson, thanks for joining us. Okay, pleasure.